Well, guys, um, my name is Mike Gaglione, if we've never met. Uh, if we haven't met, I am, whoa, I got a little applause, great, okay. <laughs> my name is Mike Gaglione, if we haven't met, if we have never met, um, I'd be happy to meet you. Um, I don't know how things work these days, do I shake your hand, do I fist bump, do we foot tap? But any way that you want to, I'd be happy to meet you after the service. Um, most of you guys probably know I'm Pastor Bob Gaglione's son. Pastor Bob's not here this week. Uh, he's on vacation. In August, what we'd like to do is kind of push him out the door and give him some time. And so I'm happy to give him the time. And um, I'm happy to be with you guys tonight. If you're just joining us and you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, we're going through a four-week series, or a five- or six-week series, actually, um, called Being Human. That's what that fancy video is for. And uh, it's a character study through the life of David. And um, David's a great character to, uh, to, to study what it means to be human because there's, there's this breadth and depth to his humanity that, uh, that it's, just like, it's just a lot to wrap your head around. And so it feels like you can kind of study him through the ups and downs. But it was funny when Calvary asked me to talk about being human through the perspective of David. Um, I had to laugh because I just feel like that's such a funny question, right? Being human. Um, David doesn't feel very human. He feels kind of like a superhero. <laughs> and so um, I, was, I reread the story of David, just went through First and Second Samuel, and I was like, oh my gosh, geez, like, this guy's not human. I mean, he's anointed to be king at 16 years old. It reminded me a little bit of the Gladiator story. You guys remember that movie with Russell Crowe? It's one of my favorite movies. It, uh, the, I remember the trailer said the tagline was, the slave, or the general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an emperor. And David's story is like that, except it's actually like a little bit cooler. It's the shepherd boy who became a hero, the hero who became a fugitive, and the fugitive who became a king. And so I'm like looking at this, looking at these chapters, and I'm trying to get some kind of relational currency with David, and I'm like, he's just way too cool for me. Um, I traced the narrative back, and I was like, all right, so anointed to be king at 16 or 17 years old. 17 or 18 kills Goliath, and he's parading through the streets, and they're saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands at 17 years old. And uh, I googled how cool was King David, just to kind of like see what the internet was saying. And I came across this like BuzzFeed type article that said 14 things that you never knew about King David. And I was like, oh, <laughs> try me. So I'm going through, and point number three said this. I, I, I copied and pasted it. Point number three said, David was a stud. Apparently, that was like worth knowing in this article. David was a stud. David means beloved of both God and humankind, especially women. It was women who used to chant, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And so I'm like, all right, what, how do I relate to David? He's this guy where at 17, he's paraded through the streets, and they're saying, Saul has slain his thousands, iconic hero. And then I was like, what was I doing at 17? <laughs> and I started to think back, and the two memories that popped into my head, and I have no idea what Freudian reason these popped into my head, but the first thing I thought was, I remember at 17, I was on the basketball team, but there was an hour and a half gap between um, leaving school and having practice. And so I would go walk by Wawa on the way home, and I would get a, a bag of Enemans chocolate donuts and a half gallon of milk. And I would go into my basement, I would play this game called Empire Earth. And I would just be clicking away, just throwing donuts into the back of my mouth and then chugging this half gallon of milk. And then after that, I would go to practice and I'd probably throw up. And uh, that was one thing that I was doing around the time that David was kind of becoming a national hero. 
And then the other thing is I started to, uh, you know, I, I was telling the story a couple weeks ago about a girlfriend that I had. It was my first girlfriend. I was 17. Her name was Jackie, and she was super cute. And I was, I was like, so happy to be in this relationship. But we're driving home one night. We're two months into it. Um, it's my first try at romance. And she starts, like, kind of having this breakup conversation with me. And I remember she kept saying, you're not, tr you're not treating this serious enough. And I was kind of scratching my head because I was like, man, I like her. And, like, how am I not treating this serious enough? I, I was, like, trying to explain to her. I was like, listen, I call you my girlfriend around my friends. I pick you up after school. I pay for ice cream when we go out to get it. Like, I feel like I do all the things a 17-year-old should do. And she was just adamant that I was not taking it seriously enough. And so that ended. So she breaks up with me, and I just was like, all right. And so we, you know, I thought we would never talk again. My dad comes into my room three days later, and he says, hey, my mom told me that you and Jackie broke up. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, did you call to see how she's doing? And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I guess because I had watched so many movies or whatever, you never talked again. So I didn't know. Like, he was like, well, I mean, she's a human being. Like, you should call her and see how she's doing. So I run to the phone, and I'm like, Don, I'm like, hey. And she goes, hey. And I was like, I'm just calling to see how you're doing. And she was like, I really wish you would have called three days ago. <laughs> and I was like, dang it. <laughs> and I just, I've always felt like a late bloomer, you know. I like can't really figure it out. Like I, I learned to shave too late. I learned everything like too late in life. And so I'm comparing my ordinary basic life with this extraordinary life of King David. And I'm like, I don't see where the overlap is. Um, but thankfully, um, there's a, a novelist, uh, Leslie Jameson. Leslie Jameson is an award-winning novelist from New York, and she said something that I will never forget, and I'll carry it with me for the rest of my life. She said, um, she's a, she wrote a memoir. She was an alcoholic, and she wrote a memoir of her road to recovery. And she said, being in those recovery meetings, she went to AA, being in those recovery meetings was so interesting because her goal as a novelist is to tell the most unique story in the world. That's the reason why people buy a novel. But when you go into AA, the goal there is to tell the same story over and over and over again. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. This is my journey to recovery. I'm Jane. I'm an alcoholic. This is my journey to recovery. And she started to realize, this light bulb went off in her head, and she started to realize there's actually some, some, something so inspiring about hearing that somebody has done basically two things, has been there before, and that you're not alone. And so that was the thing that somebody, that, that was what she realized. Somebody needs to hear the same story over and over and over again because in those critical moments, what they need to hear is you're not alone and somebody's been there before. And so it's funny because if you leave some of the epicness of David behind and you go to things like the Psalms or you start to read in between the lines, you start to see some other stuff that maybe you didn't see before. And that's what I really, really liked about exploring David. It's almost like David 2.0. Once you move past the superficiality of some of the felt board stories, you get into who David really was, how he was so human. And, um, you know, I think about uh, when he was in the desert. So he's had, like, this great experience so far. And he's walked through killing Goliath and, you know, becoming the national hero. And then all of a sudden he's on the run as a fugitive. And he's in the desert. And I don't know if you know this, but David was in the desert for a decade. And um, that's when he wrote Psalm 63. Psalm 63 goes like this. God, my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. That's human. 
And I don't know, there's probably people in this lawn who feel like God has given you promises or you've been faithful in something and you're just not seeing breakthrough. It feels like a desert. And um, David's basically here with that psalm to say, you're not alone and somebody's walked down that road before. Um, I also thought about uh, David and Bathsheba. You remember when Nathan comes to David and he, uh, and he says, hey, secret's out, and David confesses his sin. Remember the child that he had with Bathsheba falls ill. And so for a couple of days, David is just laying prostrate in front of the crib as this baby is dying, and he's saying, God, will you have mercy on this baby? He's fasting and he's praying, and he's just hoping against hope that God has mercy on this baby. And how many people on this lawn have had to deal with the fact that while you do know that you're forgiven for sin, that there are repercussions to it, and they kind of ripple out from us. And so David is there to tell you, you're not alone. Somebody's walked through that before. Um, there's also the story of Absalom. Absalom is David's son. He stages a revolt uh, against David, and there's civil war in Jerusalem. And so David's men fight Absalom's men, and Absalom's killed in that process. And when they bring the news to David, they say, uh, when, they when they tell David that Absalom's died, David runs into the palace, and he throws himself on the floor, and he says, Absalom, Absalom, uh, my son, my son, oh, that I would have died instead of you. And how many people on this lawn have someone they dearly, dearly love, or a child, who they feel like they did all the right things and they gave them the right foundation, but that person is long gone, whether that's physically, spiritually, or emotionally. David is there as a human being to say, uh, you're not alone, and somebody's walked through that before. And so I just felt like tonight we kind of would leave the big stories behind and move into like what is between the lines in David's story. What is David when he's really, really human the way that we are through all the painful experiences, through the true ups and downs? How does he actually feel? And so I almost want to like imagine, like as Leslie Jameson wrote, like imagine that we are in that AA type meeting scenario. It's like dusty basement, uh, folding chairs and styrofoam cups. And um, David's there and he's just going to tell us his story of what it means to be human. And tonight, um, what we're going to talk about is what it means to be ambitious. What does it mean to be ambitious? A um, couple things that I think that we should probably say right off the bat. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from Psalm 131, and that's the scripture that I'm going to use throughout the night. If you're a page turner, you're going to have a hard time following me because I'm going to go through the whole story of David. And don't worry, we're not going to be here until 10 o'clock at night. But um, I'm going to go pretty fast. But if you want to keep your Bible in one place, I feel like Psalm 131 is the, is the space. Imagine we're all around in a circle and we say, David, what are your thoughts around ambition? Here's what I think David would say to us. This is from the message translation. He says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope, hope now, and hope always. 
I want to say right off the bat that I think ambition is a good thing. I think it's biblical, and I think that God designed it. And so this won't be a sermon where we knock ambition. It's actually just going to be a sermon where we talk about how do we direct our ambitions in the right place. The idea is that there's healthy ambition and there's unhealthy ambition. Um, one thing that I think that, we should, that, that would be really obvious is that David is an ambitious person. One of the ways we know that is because he's so accomplished. It would be hard to accomplish what David did in his lifetime without being ambitious, right? I was reflecting on this and I was thinking, I don't know if there's a historical character that has accomplished as much in his or her lifetime as David did. Um, I just don't think that there is, especially when you consider where he came from. He starts as a shepherd. He ends as a king unifies Israel, brings it to his apex. On the side, he has this side gig as probably the most famous artist of all time. The poems that he wrote in the Psalms and some of the songs that are still sung today, definitely the most sung artist in all of history. And then also besides being king, he's also probably the most popular warrior. He definitely has the most popular battle of all time in David and Goliath. He was undefeated. And I think historically he goes down history as one of the greatest warriors. So there's this person who has accomplished quite a bit in his life, and it would be hard to argue that he wasn't ambitious. Um, the other thing I think is that I think God's ambitious. Why do I say that? I think it was ambitious to make us, and I mean that in the best way possible. I'm complimenting you. Um, if you understand the Trinity, uh, there's this three-in-one aspect to who God is, and there's perfect communion and perfect love in that. And so there's actually no reason to introduce anything else. There's no need. So I would consider it kind of ambitious to create a whole universe and to put people inside of it that can choose to love or reject love. That's an ambitious venture to have taken on. And so I actually think that God is ambitious. Um, the other thing is I actually like ambitious people. Um, I, uh, I live in New York City. And um, I love the city just for the energy and the momentum that the city carries. I think it's like an amazing place to just like, it's always like teeming with life. Uh, Frank Sinatra said, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, Jay-Z said, it's the concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. New York is like the, it's just this wheelhouse of ambition. And I kind of just love to see it. I was on a bike trip uh, two weeks ago. I took some guys from the city and we biked from Boston to Portland, Maine. And uh, it was really funny because a lot of these guys hadn't biked very much before. And so we did 150 miles in three days. And um, everybody was wiped and beat, but we were like really happy to have done it. And I just got a text from one of them last night. Uh, he texted me, my friend Tyler texted me and he said, hey, uh, in 2021 we're doing this. And he sent a link to a 100 mile ride through New York City all in a day. It's called a century ride. And something just kind of wakes up in me with people like that. I love ambitious people. I love people who are like ready to tackle the next thing. Uh, James K. Smith said this, and I feel like this kind of like just puts a bow on the whole idea. He says, if you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It's sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage. Playing it safe isn't humble. Playing it safe isn't humble. And God didn't design us, and there's nothing that you'll read in the Bible that talks about ever playing it safe. We were designed to be ambitious people. 
Um, but I think one of the things that we all understand in our culture is that uh, ambition, when directed in the wrong place, can go uh, in a thousand different wrong directions. And Eugene Peterson captured this idea for me, kind of crystallized it. He, was, uh, he, he said that there's always some t type of temptation in a place and time in history that seems to be a greater temptation than everything else. And he said in the West, and specifically in America, I think that temptation is ambition. And the reason that you know is because they flipped it, where some people would consider parts of ambition, or especially unhealthy ambition, to be a vice. It's kind of flipped into a virtue in our culture. He said this, one temptation that has received special treatment in Western civilization with some special flourishes in America is ambition. Our culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. We're surrounded by a culture in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. To be on top, no matter what the top is, is admired. There's nothing recent about the temptation. It's the oldest sin in the book, the one that got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden and Lucifer tossed out of heaven. What is fairly new about it is the general admiration and, and approval that it receives. And um, I think that that's the felt reality. We kind of get that in our culture, right? Michael Jordan is the icon of ambition. If you guys watched the Michael Jordan documentary a couple months ago, Every time that somebody asked him, well, what about like this relationship that was compromised? What about this with your teammates? He always had this answer. Well, I wanted to win. And it's almost like that's the grand excuse. As long as you want to win, then you have permission. And we iconicize people like that, and we put them on shoes, and there's your jump man. Just do it. That is what, our, what the pinnacle of what we can achieve in culture is. We're ambitious, we're ambitious people in the West. But it's interesting because... Um, like I said, there's healthy and unhealthy ambition, or you, you could use these terms. There's a worldly ambition and there's a holy ambition. And obviously, if you're a believer on the lawn tonight and you're ambitious about anything in life, you want to have a holy ambition. You don't want to have a worldly ambition. And the important thing to remember about ambition and almost every other key desire in life is that there's always something behind that, right? I've been really obsessed with this book. If anybody wants to write it down, I think it's well worth reading. It's James K. Smith, and it's called On the Road with St. Augustine. And what he does is he fuses this existentialist novel by Jack Kerouac, On the Road, with Augustine's confessions, and basically says, what do, where, do these two, where do these two lines intersect? What do we do with our longings? And so each of the chapters, I love the way he broke them down, each of them is a longing, and then there's a question underneath of it. So when you go through the chapters, it'll, it'll be like, um, you know, friendship is the name. But the question is, what do I want when I want to belong? Um, he goes through freedom. What do I want when I want to feel liberated? Sex. What do I want when I want intimacy? Or death. What do I want when I want to really live? And um, I took this way too far in my life. I read it a couple months ago. And now every time I, somebody asks for anything, I keep asking them, well, what's the question behind that question? So we'll be at like a party now, and people will be like, man, it's getting kind of late. Should we order a pizza for everybody? And I'll be like, what do you want when you want pizza? <laughs> but listen, once you've heard it, you're going to start doing it too. Honestly, it's, it's, re it's a really interesting question to say, what do I want when I say that I actually want something? He has a chapter on there about ambition, and here's the question. What do I want when I want to be noticed? What do I want? when I want to be noticed. And he goes further and he kind of breaks down what ambition actually is. And he, he, he says, ambition is built on these two pillars. I want to win and I want to be noticed for winning. 
That's what worldly ambition looks like. I want to win, and I want to be noticed for winning. And you'll know that this is you because um, if you ever, like, have something that you're pretty good at, but people don't really notice you for it because they don't value it, you don't care very much that you're good at it. So I don't know, like, it's like, you know, if we lived in a society where stamp collecting was like this major thing, then a couple of you guys would be a little bit more noticeable, right? But it's like we live in a society that values other things, so you don't really care much about stamp collecting. It's like we don't just want to win. We're not happy with winning. We need to be noticed for winning. Worldly ambition says I want to win and I want to be noticed. And so what's true is that a holy ambition just kind of tweaks that a little bit. Holy ambition is, I want God to win, and I want God to be noticed. Worldly ambition says, I want to win, and I want to be noticed. Godly ambition says, I want God to win, and I want God to be noticed. Uh, the truth is, uh, in my short life that's getting longer every day, <laughs> um, I think the thing that I've found to be most true is that God is always looking for people who care about what he cares about, and he's ready to use you as long as you care about what he cares about. And I feel like if you were going to reflect on the entire life of David, he would agree wholeheartedly with this, this idea of ambition. Founded in Psalm 131, he basically says all the central tenets of it, and he would just look at us and he would say, listen, if you are living your life where you want to win and you want to be noticed, it's never going to work. I've lived my whole life and lived this epic adventure of, with God, and the entire time it was I want God to win and I want God to be noticed. I don't know that I need to prove it to you, but this is a sermon, and, you know, this is how stuff works. So I guess I have to go through, like, all of the scriptures and kind of point this out to you. But um, you see it through the entire David narrative. So if you start at Samuel 16, at 1 Samuel 16, just work your way through, you will find this time and time and time again. So I picked three out for us just because. Um, the David and Goliath story, everybody knows it. And you'll remember that when David goes, this is the first time you actually hear David speak, it's when Goliath is kind of saying all his, you know, talking all his trash um, to the Israelites. And David goes, who is that talking trash about God? He's actually offended on behalf of God's reputation, right? And when he finally is down in the valley with Goliath, you remember Goliath, like, says all of his stuff. He says, I'm going to do this to you, this to you, this to you, feed your body to the birds and all the stuff they used to say back then. And then David comes back at him. But listen to what David said. Goliath's been all I, 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 I. David says, um, this is in 1 Samuel 17, 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And listen to this. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you all into our hands. That's what David says, right? David's posture is simple. I want God to win, and I want God to be noticed. If you move into the time that David's actually in the desert, right? Everybody knows David's running around the desert for like a decade, and there's two times that he spares Saul's life as he's running from him. The first time he catches Paul, uh, Saul going to the bathroom, and he just cuts off like a little piece of his cape, right? Shows it to him a little bit later, and he says, hey, listen, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Saul's so like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. That was a huge favor. And he's like, I'm not going to chase you anymore. Great. They part ways. And then, like, who knows, maybe six months or a year later, Saul's out to find him again. So it comes into this epic moment. I think this is around Samuel 26, where Paul is, uh, Paul's camped on, or Saul's camped on one side of the mountain, 
and David is on the other side. And in the middle of the night, David kind of sneaks over into Saul's camp. He's trying to get the lay of the land, and he finds Saul there sleeping. And David's with one of his armor bearers, and that armor bearer looks at David, and he goes, let me run a spear through him right now. And you have to imagine in David's shoes then, you're thinking, oh my gosh, it can all be over, right? God promised this to me when I was 16. Now I'm 26, 27, who knows? And I'm running around the desert, and I wake up every day not knowing if I'm going to make it, and I can end it all tonight, walk into Jerusalem tomorrow as anointed king, and this is all over. Interesting to see what he says. He says to the man, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on God's anointed. So David looks at the guy and he goes, nope, hands off. I know what God's promised me. I know that there's a way that, th that I think this is supposed to go. But as for Saul, he may die of old age, and I'm going to be really old too. He may die getting sick or he may be struck down in battle, but there's no way that I'll lay a hand on this person. Because at the end of the day, this is God's story. What does God want to do with, with, with the nation of Israel? I want God to win and I want God to be noticed, not my story. Probably my favorite one is when David flees Jerusalem. This is in 2 Samuel 15. And this is like an off-the-beaten-path. This is like a deep-cut Bob Dylan song. Nobody reads uh, 2 Samuel 15. This is when David is fleeing Jerusalem. So Absalom, his son, has started a rebellion, and they're about to kind of sack the city. And David gets out of there last minute. And so he's on his way out, and um, he looks over, and the priests are walking out too, and they have the Ark of the Covenant with them. And... Um, it's interesting because, like, you guys know that David loved the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he was the king who brought it back. Remember, he got in trouble for dancing naked around it, right? Like, David loved the Ark. And the Ark was like, it's the place where the presence of God dwelled. And so sometimes the Israelites would carry it into battle. It was almost like a lucky charm, you know? It was this idea that, man, if we, if we bring this into battle, God's got to catch 22. Because even if we have been, like, right with him, his presence is there. And so, you know, if the enemies kind of overtake us, they take his presence, which is super awkward. So he just got to let us win the battle. And so they would carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle. So that's why these priests are walking out of the city with the Ark of the Covenant, basically like, David, you're the guy, and this is super messed up. So bring the presence of God with you, and then you'll probably be fine. This is what David says. This is in 2 Samuel 15. He says, Then David said to Zadok, the priest, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And David basically looks at them and he says, listen, I don't need a lucky charm. I was anointed when I was 16 and I had a lot of dreams for the way this was going to work out. And I had no idea that 20 or 30 years later, I'd be in the middle of a civil war. Uh, in this city. But God's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm just like literally surrendered at his feet. That's the posture of David in this. He says, I want God to win. If God's going to bring me back into the city, if I'm going to see that ark again, I want God to win and I want God to be noticed for winning. And so I feel like if we were in that, you know, I'm gonna, let's, let's go back into the basement in our little AA meeting right? Folding chairs and styrofoam cups. And just hearing some of the stories that David's telling. 
I just kind of think, like, as, as he would have walked through this narrative, there would be the, the questions that we would ask somebody as prolific and historic as David. Is David, throughout all the undulations, through everything, through these ups and downs, these crazy moments that you have, what was your secret sauce? What was, the, what was the Maxwell books that you read? What were the mentors that you had? What were the leadership traits that you cultivated? And um, how did you get the grit? How did you Michael Jordan your career becoming shepherd boy to king? And what I really, really think David would do if he was in that chair is he would just say, I said it in Psalm 131. I'll read it again. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. And so maybe he kind of turns the question back to us. And he says, what do you do when you're in those moments? I have to believe that there's a lot of ambitious people on the lawn tonight. Uh, why wouldn't you be? Uh, you've got to be kind of ambitious. You're coming to church when nobody else is coming to church. Right? <laughs> and everybody here has dreams. Everybody's trying to be somebody. Everybody wants to be known for something. We all want to be seen. It's like just a core human desire in the heart. We want to be seen. And um, I just think about all the things that we're trying to tackle, all the stuff that we're trying to do. Do we have this mindset? I want God to win. I want God to be noticed. Or is the fundamental framework that we operate with, I want to win, and I want to be noticed for winning. I don't know what it looks like for you. It may be that, you know, it may be that you pursue a certain career that gets you to a certain income level so that you have a car and you have a house and, you know, these status symbols qualify you as a person who's legit. It may be that you have been doing TikTok dances for the last, like, couple weeks and you're really trying to go viral and it's not working. Um, I don't know. You know, like there's just like, there's a lot of people with a lot of dreams in life. Um, but it's funny because as I've been reflecting on this, uh, I've been kind of challenged in my own life personally. Um, I'm 33. And so one of the things that I've kind of feel like I've learned at this age is I actually don't really know how to make myself very happy when I plan things my own way. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's this idea that it's like, man, you kind of think that something out there is going to satisfy. And one day when you do that, when you win, then you'll be noticed. And then being noticed will be what you needed. And then you do it and then it's never enough. Or more often than not, like in my life, you don't even do it. <laughs> and then you notice for not doing it. And, um, and it's funny because you find yourself in those moments and you start to realize, man, this isn't really it. I, um, I remember hearing a celebrity who was getting interviewed and they asked him this question. They said, when you were starting your career, what's one of the things that you really would have loved to have known? And he said, I would have loved to have known that when I got to the top, there was nothing there. And um, somebody commented on that and they said, yeah, that might be true, but I'd at least like to see for myself. <laughs> But we hear that all the time, right? We hear that all the time. It's like the, the thing that you're fighting for, the thing that you're, you're just trying to bar your way into a room, you're trying to get into a circle of people that you could know, you're trying to get to a place where it's like, look at me, look at me, look at me, and we live our lives this way, and the culture is just designed around this. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, is it actually fulfilling? 
And I think that the reason I turn to Psalm 131 is because I feel like David would be shaking his head at most of the stuff we're doing, which is ironic because David has one of the most epic stories ever told. But that's the thing is I actually think that when you live life God's way, when you have godly ambition, when you want God to win and you want God to be noticed for winning, everything starts to expand. It's like life gets bigger and better and more creative and more fulfilling. And I've seen this in so many dimensions of my life. I was actually trying to think through like some big grand example of like who is in culture really followed the leading of the Lord and then something explosive happened. They started to live this bigger life. And I was like, I actually don't think that I need to move past just the people in this church because I've seen a lot of you guys do exactly this. I've seen you surrender and say, God, I want you to win and I want you to be noticed. And I've seen fruit come from that and this expansive life. It's funny, um, C.S. Lewis has this, has this um, picture that he always uses of sin being small and living life God's way being huge. And so if you've ever read The Great Divorce, there's heaven and hell in, great, in The Great Divorce, and the people take the bus from hell to go visit heaven every day. And it's really funny because the bus doesn't go to hell, it just grows to hell. C.S. Lewis's idea was that hell is so small because those desires that we have, those carnal desires that we have, are so small, they just look like a speck in heaven. And so when people travel to heaven from hell, they take the bus and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And what he was saying is, sin is small, but God's plan for us is huge. It's bigger, it's better, it's more creative, it's more fulfilling than you would ever imagine. He says this, um, and this is one of the most famous C.S. Lewis, Lewis quotes of all time. If you've heard it, just hear it again and let it soak into your spirit. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are just far too easily pleased, he says. And Eugene Peterson said, we're always, he goes, all of human history is basically this idea of sweatily trying to knock together a Tower of Babel when God already gave us Eden to live in. And for some reason, we want to chase this smallness in life when the bigness is offered. And I was thinking about, you know, like I said, I was thinking about some people here in this church. And Danielle's here tonight. Where are you at, Danielle? Yeah. Danielle, I met Danielle probably five years ago or something, right? By this time, maybe even more. <laughs> Who knows? Um... But I was thinking about her and her heart for Guatemala. She went to Guatemala years ago. I don't even know if I have the story perfect, but what I do know is she's a dental hygienist, went to Guatemala, and saw the, the, what the kids were experiencing in the dumps. Um, the dumps are huge trash dumps that these barefoot kids pick through trying to get dead batteries and some plastics to resell. And uh, they live this life that, you know, you honestly couldn't even imagine. They literally live on a trash heap. And uh, Danielle went down there and she was like, I just can't tolerate that these kids don't have their teeth cleaned. I'm a dental hygienist. That's the only thing I really kind of feel like I can offer. And so she went back and she raised a ton of money to bring a dental clinic to these trash dumps. And uh, it's crazy because I got to go. Uh, we brought a, a team of like 20 or 30 people down this last February. And I got to go. And it's, it was just nuts to see. Danielle cleaning kids' teeth who probably have never had their teeth cleaned in their entire life. And um, we brought down uh, hairstylists. And so these little girls who literally barefoot are picking through this trash dump got their hair cut by professional stylists for the first time. And all of these like amazing things. And I was looking at Danielle and I was thinking, oh my gosh, how big is her life? 
when she wants God to win and she wants God to be noticed. And how small would it have been? I don't know what else you would have done in your spare time, Danielle, but you probably would have, I don't know, like maybe placed a few more uh, hygienists or whatever, and maybe, maybe her condo would have an extra 400 square feet, or maybe her car would have a nicer emblem on it. But you think about how small that life is compared to that, and how many lives she's touched by the people who went to Guatemala here, and how many lives in Guatemala she's touched, and the ripple effect that just goes out when you want God to win and you want God to be noticed. I was um, thinking about my sister. You know, my sister's a really smart, super intelligent, career-driven woman, and she just heard from God that she needed to stay home with her kids. And that's still in the process. And I know a lot of you guys have kids, and you know how that can be. There's so many parents who have sacrificed their career for the sake of their children's development, seeing their children grow. And I just think when that's all said and done, you'll look at this and say, oh my gosh, the bigness of what God had. When I wanted God to win in my child's life, and when I wanted God to be noticed... Versus some career where I made, you know, an extra $100,000 or something like that. I thought about Innovate, uh, some of the teachers here at Innovate Academy. And some of the teachers here are so good. I know some of them personally, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, these guys could teach in any school district anywhere. They're great. And they decide to be here, probably not making the same amount of money, probably not getting the same benefits and tenure that a lot of those teachers get in those great school districts. But they've got this thing where they really want to see children's lives transformed by classical Christian education. They want God to win, and they want God to be noticed for winning. And, uh, you know, and then just apply that lens to your own life. You know, what is it for you? What are you doing right now? Like, what are you interested in? What are you driving towards? Where is God in that? And I just want to discourage you from one thing. I think like a lot of times it's like, well, yeah, you know, like, well, David was anointed and he was king and all that type of stuff. So that applies to him. And I don't know, maybe Danielle's super spiritual. So, you know, I'll factor that out. I'm just a normal guy. I work a nine to five, white collar job, blue collar job. I don't know. So like, I don't really have anything to be ambitious about. I want to just say this. Remember, David started as a shepherd. And listen, I'm the nine to five guy too. Like, I get it. I I work right now, you know, I used to go to an office, I, <laughs> I put on my collar shirt, I work from home at my kitchen table now, like, like probably all of you guys do, but I'm there every day just grinding away, and, um, and I think like we've got our areas that we can explore, and we've got to figure out what those are, what those are, what those are supposed to be. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know that this psalm is what speaks to me. I look at this and I say, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. Step one. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in my mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, wait, wait. If you're asking David, David, how did you, how did you tackle this big thing? How did you go on that epic adventure? How did you navigate this circumstance? David's answer would be, always be the same. I cultivated a quiet heart. I was like a baby when it came to God. Just wait, wait, wait. I don't know what waiting looks like for you. Um, I, th- I feel like everybody's got their own relationship with God and you figure it out. I know people who are kind of on all ends of the spectrum. They put on crazy worship songs and they dance around. They've got flags and they do their thing. And then I know people who would think that that was totally weird. And they don't even... Um, you know, they're just like, oh, I just read the scripture every day or whatever. For me, I, you know, I live, in, I live in New York on the Upper West Side, and I'm two avenues from the river. And so 
For me, cultivating a quiet heart and being like a baby in God's arms and just offering my nine to five um, and my life is basically just going down to the river early in the morning and I just sit there and I literally do wait. I wait and just say, you know, there's different dimensions that I explore every day. God, here's my career. This is what it looks like. This is what I've been trying to do. What will you take of it and do what you want to do with it? I want I want you to win and I want you to be noticed in what I do for work. Uh, relationally, God, these are my people. These are the people that I feel like you've given me. Uh, I don't really know what next steps to take, but I want you to yeah. win in their lives and I want you to be noticed in their lives. Uh, I just want to partner with you in that. Um, you know, any, any different facet of your life, if you have kids, it's like whatever that looks like, it's the constant prayer, God. I want you to win, and I want you to be noticed. How can you use me in just raising these kids? Um, Or if there's like some super crazy ministry idea that you've always had, a way of reaching people, a way of making the world better. God, I want you to win, and I want you to be noticed for winning. I, um, I read this story a couple years ago, and it's, um, it's a story that Donald Miller, it's, a, it's a story out of a Donald Miller book. Donald Miller is a pretty famous Christian author. He's um, he wrote Blue Like Jazz uh, probably ten or fifteen years ago, and um, kind of like really hit it off in the Christian scene. Everybody loves him. He's so honest and all that type of stuff. And he's wrote a bunch of best-selling books since then. Has become a super popular Christian author. Five years ago, I read this book called Scary Close, and he, he told a story in here about um, a pastor that he grew up with. It was the pastor who told him, it was the first person in his life who told him, hey, you're a really good writer. You should cultivate that gift. And he talks about this pastor that was very transformative to him, and he says, you know, he's the greatest guy in the world. He's also super talented. He was a great communicator. Um, he was charming. He was good-looking. He kind of had all of the things that would make you special. He was like, he could have been like this epic pastor where he grew up in Texas, but he kind of never did. Like he never, he never became that person that Donald Miller thought he could be. And the reason is, is because he was kind of like, every time he could have stepped into the limelight, he was always taking a step back and doing something that was like counterintuitive, something like way different that you felt like God was calling him to. So anyway, uh, Donald Miller gets a call one day. Uh, apparently he died in a car accident. And the family has called him. They said, hey, we wanted to know if you, would be, if you would speak at his funeral and give him a eulogy. And so Donald Miller flies back to Texas, and, uh, and he kind of has this moment where he's at the hotel room, and he's thinking about the eulogy he has to give. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, I wish I could say that I admired him for the way he lived, but I wanted to, him to have had a little money and a car that worked. And I wanted him to have enjoyed the pleasures of life a man of his talent deserved. I felt like I knew a guy who could hit a home run any time he went to bat, but he'd never even tried to play the game. When he was alive, I'd ask him a dozen times to write a book, so he'd start one and then get bored and lose interest. Instead, he'd start a recovery program for addicts. I spent the day before David's funeral in a hotel room. This is David, not David from the Bible, but David is the name of the character. I spent the day before David's funeral in a hotel room preparing for the eulogy. I don't know that I've cried that much before or since. As I thought about him, I realized what was gone from the world was a depth of goodness few of us had experienced in a friend. What was gone from the world was a quiet, unassuming man who believed love mattered more than personal glory. 
And I knew, at least for me, he'd been proven right. Had he been more impressive, I'd not have felt half the pain of his passing. It was his love for me that created the chasm and the ache. It was a struggle to think about David and compare his life to mine. More people knew my name, but far more people knew him. I wondered which was better, to have all the stuff we think will make people love us or to have love itself. David had love. What was shocking, though, was what happened next. Small church where he pastored couldn't hold the number of people who wanted to attend the service, so they moved David's funeral to a baseball stadium outside of town. When I got there, news trucks were parked in the parking lot with tall antenna raised above the gathering crowd. The parking lot was full, so the parking lot was full, so people were parked along the street to get to the stadium. And all this for a man who died as the assistant pastor of a church with no more than a hundred members. I sat near home plate with David's family and looked out over the crowd. I felt small yeah, in that I place. I felt I small in my accomplishments, and I knew. I knew because it was a fact that love had won that day. Thousands of people had been deeply loved by a man who sought no fame and no glory. David didn't try to impress people. He simply loved them. And I feel like... If there's any idea in your head that there's something that you're pushing for in life that you kind of feel like if I could just get there, if I could just get into that room, if I could just get that job, if people could just see me that way, that I feel like gather around the circle and just listen to David in this dusty basement telling you, listen, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to try to win and you don't have to try to be no try and be noticed. And that life will be so much more fulfilling, expansive, creative, if you would just get in your head that God can win and God can be noticed for it, that that's the best life that we could live. And that question that kind of like goes through our head of how do I do that is answered by this psalm. If you want like an easy application, I'm not good at application because I hate telling people how to live their life, but if you want an easy application, how do I actually foster the kind of posture that David had? I feel like it's like, hey, just start by reading this psalm over and over and over again. David has this posture of listening. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. David didn't need to go anywhere because he was already content. David didn't need to prove anything because he already, he already felt like he was totally aligned with the vision of God. God is constantly looking for people who care about what he cares about. And so when I think about us tonight, I just feel like what David is teaching us about what it means to be human, and especially within that, what it means to be ambitious, is he's just telling us, partner with God in God's story. Partner with God in God's story. Let's make God known give God the glory, let's, let's help God win, and let's make sure that God is noticed for winning. I promise you, you will never live a more fulfilling life than that. I'm going to welcome the band back up on stage, and I'm going to pray. And um, I want to say this, I really want to kind of go after this, because ambition's a weird thing to talk about. Um, yeah. The reason I think it is, is because it's so deep-seated, right? Like, it's very much tied to core identity things of who we are. And I know that there's, like, there's areas of my life that I've surrendered, and I've seen that expansion, I've seen that bigness. 
But I know there's areas of my life that aren't surrendered, and I don't really see God move in those areas. And the same might be true of you. And so I feel like give the Holy Spirit some time tonight to do a little rooting around. Um, My hope is that you would just offer up to God the idea, uh, God, is there a place in me where I just don't let you into? Because the truth is I want to be seen, I want to be recognized in this space. Um, There's sometimes things that we don't see until the Holy Spirit reveals it. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us tonight that that actually happens. And, um, And then we'll close out.